Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Anand Patel. And I'm Naomi Sheldon. And we're your hosts of The Pleasure Podcast. I'm a doctor specialising in sexual function. And I'm an actor-writer with an interest in the intimate. We want to fill the gap in the nation's sex and relationship education through interviewing guests on how we relate to our bodies when it comes to sex, identity and, of course, pleasure. Welcome to Season 4. We're kicking off with a mini-series on parenthood. I'm pregnant with twins and finding mainstream narratives about pregnancy and motherhood pretty narrow. Where are the stories about trans people giving birth? What about the choice to be child-free? And what exactly does a doula do? I want to open up the stories we hear at these pivotal points in our lives. As a GP, I have rather too short conversations with people at these defining moments. This was an opportunity to discuss the decision to get pregnant, to try again after miscarriage to challenge how the society you brought your child into would treat them and you, and have a deeper look at the way our health system handles pregnancy and motherhood as a whole. This is by no means an exhaustive set of interviews, but we hope it's a bold start. This week's guest is Bruntwood Prize-winning playwright, screenwriter and director Anna Jordan. Her work has been performed in theatres from the Royal Court to the Royal Exchange, and on screen she's written for shows such as Succession and Killing Eve. Her down-to-earth charm is combined with a furiously wicked humour, finding laughter and hope in the darkest of places. And it's this combination that is so striking in her monologue for The Bunker's Every Woman, in which playwrights wrote confessions on parenting and identity. Anna's piece was on her miscarriages and navigating a potential motherhood whilst losing her own mother. In Anna's signature style, the account is far from hopeless. More, it's an honest tale about a subject that is still so little spoken of without shame and fear. Anna had three missed miscarriages before she had her son, Griff, who makes a star appearance in this interview. She talks to us about trying for a baby, the losses along the way, what a missed miscarriage is, and the choices that follow. Anna explores the shame of blood, who to tell about your miscarriages, and the act of falling in love with her pregnant body after years of self-scrutiny. She says if one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage, then why, as a society, don't we talk about this more? Why is it that anything that occurs below the belly button and above the knee of a woman is talked about in whispers? We do go to some dark places here, so do take care if you've been affected by miscarriage. You wait for something for so long. You know, I'm sure we'll speak more about it, but the balance between, obviously, the, the huge negatives of, like, all of that loss and all of that time and trauma trying to get pregnant for so long and losing the babies that we lost and stuff. And then when it starts to happen, it's just, it's the most incredible feeling. And I, yeah, I just, I loved it. I loved it. Although my partner said to me, I can't remember why, who I was talking to or something, where I said, oh, I loved being pregnant. He said, you hated it. You hated it. You were so ill. And I was ill or I was, I had uh, lots of problems throughout and I did moan all the way through. <laughs> 
But I was like, oh no, I loved it. I loved it. It was great. <laughs> there often seems to be that thing, doesn't it? I've discovered when I'm speaking to friends or family about their pregnancy, where I'm saying, certainly in the early stages, when I was asking about, oh, did you feel this? Did you feel that? Trying to get a sort of a reference, really. Yeah. And no one can remember a fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, of course, I really jog their memory and then they're like, oh no, maybe I do remember having those cramping pains. Actually, maybe, no, no, now you're saying it. Maybe I did. And it, it's sort of, I suppose you move on to the next phase, don't you? There's so many phases. Yeah. You yeah. Just move you do. On. But little things like, you know, I waited for so long to feel the baby kick and friends were telling me about like how it's a little fluttering sensation have you had that yet it feels maybe a little bit like popping like a popping sensation and I remember thinking no I haven't and of course like you know like everything else I waited and waited for it and it didn't come and it didn't come and then it finally did and I thought I never want to forget how this feels but of course you do because you can't actually I mean, there's no way of setting that in time, I think. It's just a very, it's a really fleeting thing. I mean, you must be having that loads, right? I mean, I am getting kicked around like (laughs) crazy. I am a little worried. I spoke to the obstetrician. He said that there was a pair of the most, some of the most active babies he's ever seen. Wow. And he said, and I'm only 25 weeks, so I've got a while to go. And I said, but what happens when they get bigger? And he just turned around to me. He looked at me in the face and he just went... Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Oh my god. I do think doctors say good luck a lot. I say good luck when someone's going off for an operation and stuff. And I've been I've had feedback going, and then that wasn't Break entirely reassuring. <laughs> Telling me yes. good luck before you're going for your knee operation didn't really help me. So I, 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 I don't want luck. Now, I don't want luck for this. No, yeah. I recognise now I'm not gonna say that. I'm saying it will be fine. Probably, oh, that's but that doesn't nice. help either. That's it. Yeah, but the probably doesn't help people either. So I don't know what I'm going to say from now on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it sure. is funny. You sort of don't want the suggestion of anything to do with luck, really. Do you, you just want cold, hard medical fact. But talking about putting things in time, like solidifying things. I mean, I feel in many ways you have been able to do a lot of that through that incredible piece that you wrote and shared with us. Oh what yeah. Kind of, what kind of fuckery is this? Yeah. Which was beautiful monologue oh, about you. the experience of, of losing your mum and, yes. and having having your first baby but also the losses of the others along the way yeah yeah it was really intense I, I have to say that I did some writing along the way so I don't think I did any writing with the first miscarriage but with the second and third miscarriages I did make these little um scribblings and that was really useful because there is only so much you can recall you know and the one thing that kept coming back to me I had this sort of weird fantasy while I was sitting awake in front of the TV after, I think this was my second miscarriage, because they were missed miscarriages, which I talk about a lot in the piece as well. Um, and I think Catherine Ryan's been talking a lot about this recently yes. as well. And I was really pleased that she was, because I think it's just something that's not really understood by the general public, is that very often you'll have a scan and there will be no heartbeat, but you haven't had a miscarriage yet and the baby is still inside you and it's and it's dead essentially and then you have to choose between uh letting it happen naturally which can happen over a very very long period or taking medical management which is the same as the abortion pill or having a ERPC which is evacuated remains of products of conception terminology (laughs) just horrible um so the first two times I had um medical management but so anyway the point was that this 
I was sitting in front of the TV and I think it was the middle of the night and I'd been drinking. I don't think I was very drunk, but I mean, at any point, alcohol was going to affect me. And I just had this weird sort of fantasy about like running out in the street in my nighty and shooting these birds that were like the morning birds with a sawn off shotgun. And I thought it was this really like fantastically dramatic scene. And then when I read it back, I was like, this is utter, what the fuck? This is so ridiculous. This woman in her like late thirties running out into the street and shooting birds. I could really see the humor in it afterwards. But yes, so there were all little things like that that I was recalling that I wouldn't have been able to recall so much. And actually, because that writing existed, all I had to do really was join the dots. As well as it being like a quite a cathartic experience, I didn't realise how much I needed to sort of reignite my love of words a little bit because I'd been working really hard. You know, when you're writing for TV and stuff, sometimes you get stuck in a development process. You're writing outlines rather than dialogue and scenes. And, and sometimes you just need to remind yourself, like, that is why... That's what drew you to it in the first place, just yes. this love of words and the joy of finding just the right words to express, you know, what's probably, you know, my most painful experiences was a really weird contrast. As you say, you know, Catherine Ryan is now talking about miscarriages. You've been talking a bit more about miscarriages, but I mean, it has been for a long time and still is a really taboo subject. Mm. And I was thinking about how we don't even, we're really encouraged not to speak to people about our pregnancy until we've hit that 12 week mark, yes. for instance, yeah, because yeah. of the shame built around it. There is an immense amount of shame surrounding it. And I find it so depressing. When I was writing the piece, I wrote some interesting poems around that time and I really felt that I would be able to be really descriptive and vivid about what the actual process of having a miscarriage was. Because physically, in terms of bleeding and stuff that you pass, it can be a very, very... Um, I don't want to say gruesome, but I'm going to say gruesome. <laughs> a gruesome experience. And I thought, right, I'm going to really get my teeth into this. This is the piece that I've been wanting to write and I'm not going to be ashamed about what that experience was like. You know, I had like awful experiences where I was bleeding so heavily that I'd like fell over in the toilet, like slipping on my own blood. And I thought, I'm going to be able to put that into words. And I, you know, when it came down to it, I just didn't and couldn't. And I think I say in the piece, I think it's like a lifetime of shame about blood coming from your fanny is just too strong to just unravel. And I think that goes for, for periods as well. Like, I'm a Generation Xer, like, I'm 40, but I've got a lot of younger friends and really makes me so happy to see women openly talking about their periods. And I feel like it's not something that I can just do free and easily, although I do attempt to do it because I think it's so important. So I think stuff around women's vaginas and wombs just makes people uncomfortable and is taboo and... That's the way we've lived for so long and it just, it feels so unfair. Did you feel able to speak to anybody about your, your first miscarriage? Yeah, so I did. With my first three pregnancies, I had a thing where I wouldn't tell anyone that I wouldn't tell I'd had a miscarriage. So I told my, my closest friends and my mum and dad and my partner's mum and dad with each pregnancy. And I think the last pregnancy, which is the one that stayed with Griff, um, I didn't tell so many people. So I did share it. And my experience with my first miscarriage, looking back, all of my subsequent miscarriages and all of my pregnancy, overwhelmingly, 
that was a positive experience. My first experience, we just had a really, really negative experience where I was dealing with a nurse who just couldn't look me in the eye when mm. she discovered there was no heartbeat. You know, you're in this very precarious position because you've got your legs up and you've got this, um, I think I say in the piece, it's like a camera on the end of a dildo with a condom over it. <laughs> so you're, it can be quite uncomfortable and they're searching for this heartbeat. And of course, I didn't know about any of this. And actually, what I sometimes feel quite sad about is with my first miscarriage, I had a scan at about six or seven weeks, I think, originally. No heartbeat, but they said that doesn't prove anything. Like, it, it's quite common not to feel a heartbeat at this point. Sometimes you can only see what's called the yolk sac and you can't see the heartbeat. And therefore, and it's just, it's not fully formed yet. So you wait a couple of weeks and then rescan. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So then I went, and it was when Yen was first on in Manchester. So I went off. And that, that pregnancy was a complete surprise. <laughs> like, it was a complete surprise. Didn't expect it at all. Went off, did, like, first week of rehearsals and was just, like, so blown away and felt so strange. And then when I came back, I had a scan and there was still no heartbeat. And that's when I had this really unpleasant experience. But I didn't realise that the chances of seeing a heartbeat after you haven't seen one at seven weeks is much lower. And I hadn't realised that. So I'd actually spent two weeks being quite sort of, oh my God, you know, this is really happening. And then the experience that I had was that this nurse was, and having had uh, further interactions with the most incredible nurses and doctors over my whole journey, people who really at the crucial point when someone is looking into your eyes and telling you your pregnancy is not viable, it's so important to be just clear and direct and, and, and warm and open and honest. But this nurse couldn't look at me and um, she just kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but it was a really non-committal, I'm sorry. Oh, goodness. And then we had, we had to wait in this room for like oh, about 35 minutes, this freezing cold room and then deal with this very harassed doctor who kept saying, and I think I mentioned this in the piece, who kept saying to me, if you pass the embryo over the weekend, you can bring it into A&E. And I was saying, firstly, I didn't really, I was only about, well, I was only eight weeks pregnant. I didn't really realise that I was going to pass it. Um, I may have been further on. I always get my dates wrong. It's been so many times. And I, I was really confused about why they wanted to test it and what they were going to do and we were having some interaction problems we weren't understanding each other and in the end I just had a bit of a cry and said I don't understand what you mean um and they explained it was for some sort of testing but anyway the point was that I she said she'd give me a little thing to take it away in to bring it in in case I needed to and then she was so harassed and as she sort of left the room to get something I said can you get that um can you get that container for me in case I pass it over the weekend? And she said, oh, don't you have a clean Tupperware at home? And I, and I always, I laugh about it now, but at the time I looked back and I'm a really, really messy person. And I have things like when I was at school or when I was at college or, you know, whatever, I'd have like Tupperwares in my bag that would be there for whole summer holidays and I'd come back at the beginning of September, <laughs> open them, mould and everything. Um, I'm terribly messy and really bad at leaving things at the back of the fridge and I thought not one single Tupperware I've got is fit to put my, my unborn child in. And I was like, of course, 
of course this didn't work of course I'm not good enough to be a mother I can't even you know I can't even keep my Tupperwares mold free so I, I found that whole experience very very difficult but I think that where a lot of the shame comes from it comes from a bad historically it comes from a bad place um you know it comes from the patriarchy it comes from uh, i think denial of women's feelings and pain and a sort of idea of being dirty which is completely wrong but i think what happens is that that shame it just grows and and it's really hard when there is an awareness that that shame exists to completely ignore it so i'm aware that Actually, I don't feel ashamed to talk about a miscarriage and I don't feel ashamed and I will talk about it openly now. But I am aware that whoever I am talking to might not receive it in as a relaxed way as I am ready to talk about it. So even though I think it's really important to talk about it, there's also always an awareness that if you are going to talk about it, you might not have a, a comfortable conversation. And when you were going through this, well, all, all three of them, did you mm. feel like there was any literature... Um, you know, fictional, really. I'm not talking about sort of, sort of uh, doctors' pamphlets, oh. but about, about sort of anecdotal literature in the way that they're starting to be now that you felt that you could find no. comfort in. Do you know? No, I didn't. And actually, I'm. It's something that I'm quite bad at, considering I'm a writer. Identifying stuff that is useful for either stuff I'm going through or stuff that I'm working on. Um, I, I often find that, oh, God, of course I should have read that. Why didn't I read that? But also I think there's a little... I mean, I had a thing recently, reasonably recently, where I recommended the grief cast to a friend who'd recently been bereaved. And when I spoke to her afterwards, she said it was just a bit too early for her to have listened to yeah. it. And I felt um, anxious about that because I think the grief cast is brilliant, but it can really shake you because it's so honest and... And other people's experience I think I was probably quite frightened actually and I and still the other day you know I was just pottering and tidying my room and I was like right well, I want to listen to a podcast and I thought oh well I listened to that Catherine Ryan podcast and and I started listening to the beginning of it and was really impressed with how honest she was about how little knowledge she had about miscarriage before she had one but then I thought you know what do I need to do this now like this is never going to be a casual listen for me <laughs> like it's always <laughs> it's always going to be hard and so I think that I may have shielded myself I think after my first miscarriage I listened to a uh, <laughs> because I'm I'm a big audible person like I'm <laughs> I like to listen I find it much more relaxing and I can get things done. Um, so I often listen to a book rather than read it. And um, I think I listened to a book about Columbine. <laughs> oh, wow. When I first... <laughs> easy this, listening. Yeah. Very easy listening. And then I think maybe the second one I listened to, Elizabeth is Missing. I remember that. So two quite sort of differently dark titles. I didn't choose them because I thought they were... You know, I just, I think I just wanted to be as far away from what I was experiencing. But no, there wasn't anything to devour at all. I think that's interesting about the sort of the dirtiness you've discussed about why people ascribe sort of negative things to mm. blood and bone yeah. and physical sort of liquids. When actually, yeah. to me, it's more of sort of an earthy thing and then a dirty thing, if that makes sense. Yes, I think that really does. And, um, and it's really good to hear you say that. One of my favourite 
bits of dialogue is from Vivian Fransman's Pests when one of the young girls who's been brought up in the care system has experienced a lot of trauma and was rejected by her parents but she talks about I think they were on holiday and she first has her period and she runs out um, to the beach and she's sitting on the beach and she's having her period and the, the sea is coming in and it's like washing away the blood and she says Oh God, it's really moving. She, she says, and I thought to myself, I am part of this world, you know, um, and that makes me, I always thought that was just a beautifully, like like you're saying, and, and like an, it's an earthy thing, it's to do with life. But I think that, I don't know what your experience was growing up, Naomi, at school and stuff. I mean, but just the idea, and I went to a girls' school, so a uh, secondary school, so it's different, but thinking about what it was like at primary school and the way that children deal with you know the idea of leaking through your knickers onto your school skirt and and it's showing in front of people oh the shame you know the biggest shame the biggest shame um and 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 that sort of crippling feeling and 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 also just things like (laughs) i think when i when i wrote pop music which is uh, one of my most recent plays, like I did a vagina count at the end of it. I don't think all the vaginas made it through, but I'd said vagina about eight times. And I think it's because like vagina's having a renaissance, the word, like suddenly it's okay to say it. And I just remember thinking as a kid, God, penis is a terrible word, but vagina is even <laughs> worse. Who would ever want to refer to their vagina? But I say it all the time now because it just feels good to be able to say it without a sense of shame attached. Mm, yes. Um, yeah. but yes, feels like things are moving on. Yeah. Yeah, I think it really I think it really does. And to see like I remember following a following a Twitter discussion which was discussing about I'm still giggling nervously thinking about it, but discussing whether or not those uh period pants. So actually a great new thing which is so so you don't have to use sanitary towels or tampons. Period pants that they just come with a special material. So it was this discussion about were they able to deal with everything that you had during your monthly flow? And so there's like, you know, women discussing what their monthly flow was like and whether these pants are able to hold them all. And I was sort of like, oh, this feels so brave, you know. But I think that it's really hard when you're programmed with that sort of thing. It's, it's very similarly to do with body image and talking about being pregnant and this falling in love with myself that I had when I was pregnant. And... I think I say in the piece, it's like, I feel like a war that's been raging for 38 years has ceased and I'm waving the white flag. And really, I feel like when I was growing up, and I'm sure now and at any time, but I'm hoping it's changing slightly now, I really grew up when it was the thing to be as thin as possible, you know, heroin chic, they called it. And I've always really battled with my image. So how did pregnancy change your your self-perception of your well, body? Well, when I was pregnant, I was, um, as I say, like, I've never liked my stomach. I think I'm quite an apple shape, so I always put weight on there. So when you get pregnant, it's meant to be there, so it's okay. And I quite like my arms and legs and the rest of me, so I was like, well, hey. <laughs> um, and as my bump was getting bigger, it meant that he was alive and he was growing, and that was just infinite joy. But in terms of my body... I found it really beautiful. I found the bump beautiful. I never was squeamish about it. I didn't feel any sort of sense of that my body wasn't mine. And then when I had Griff, 
I felt pleased that actually I've lost quite a lot of weight since having him and I'm quite a lot thinner than I was before. However, that's all to do with exercise and different stuff, I think, and just running around after a toddler maybe. But things like I've got like a bit of a droopy tummy that he loves to whack and, <laughs> and, and I don't care. And I've got some stretch marks there and I really, like I genuinely don't care because he came from that. And the really positive part of me goes, yeah, that is... That's progress. I don't feel ashamed about my body and I feel proud of it, even though it's imperfect. And then the other part of me that's negative goes, oh, at least my body's imperfect, but I've got something to show for it now. Whereas I never had anything to show for it before and it was still imperfect. Mm. <laughs> and I suppose it's just a changed relationship because after giving birth and after really understanding, and not certainly not everyone has this I know and but for me it was a very very traumatic experience um understanding just the level of stress that my body had gone under and that it was still here and it was still serving me it was still looking after me I was a breastfeeding is one of the few things that went reasonably smoothly for me so I was able to give him food from my body from my breast yeah I just made just really good friends with my body after all that about what I could and couldn't do. Right, I felt yeah. like a time bomb. I felt like a dangerous ticking time bomb Gosh, yeah. where I was told that I couldn't do, I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to do yoga classes because they couldn't, they didn't have insurance to mm. cover me before 12 weeks. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to have a massage. I wasn't allowed to eat certain things. I mean, and, and that kind, and those things felt like the advice was changing all the time. Mm -hmm. Doctors were saying things weren't viable, so yet, so, you know, so, so I couldn't be seen about X, Y, Z. And I felt like I was dangerous mm, or wow. I could be dangerous to, to, to my baby, yeah. or babies, as it turns out. Yeah. Um, and, and it was, it, it was such a frightening first trimester. So Naomi, sorry, where did you, where did you get that sense of 
fright from? Where was that fear coming from? So, for example, a yoga instructor or a PT. So it was everywhere. Yeah, and the and the doctors, and then I wasn't allowed to. T- I was told I shouldn't tell people. Obviously, as we've spoken about about the pregnancy, because <sighs> it, I might lose the the baby, and then ha- how you know? Do I really want to put that pressure on myself and others to to share that grief? I felt like, and it's similar to what Catherine Ryan was saying in her amazing episode of her podcast about um, her miscarriage. But I felt like every time I spoke about the pregnancy it was a naughty sort of it was a bit naughty that I was telling people about yeah, it yeah. and and b I had to have a caveat of if it happens yeah if 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 the baby survives um uh, and so I, I yeah I, I never felt I never felt safe or real like I existed like this period of time existed mm. and I felt like if something did go wrong I would be to blame the point why they're saying you can't do your yoga or you can't have your fucking massage is because just because well because it's a bureaucratic society that's very that, that's very sorry litigious yeah, because they don't have the so, bloody insurance that's that's all yes, it is it's not because exactly. you can't it's, actually it's do it it's nothing to do because doing yes. downward dog is going to cause yeah. a, a miscarriage <laughs> it's simply because actually the chances are just higher so that yeah. they were you know you might make those connections yeah but i think i do feel like it's an extension on the pressure that is put on women's bodies generally yeah I agree, absolutely, I think so. I mean, I think when you have multiple miscarriages that you do start to look for a reason. I started out knowing that I had what's called a septated uterus, which is where your uterus is... um, It wasn't fully split into two. It was very almost split into two. But I discovered that in my late 20s, and I know that can increase your risk of miscarriage. So there was the knowledge of that. And then when I had my second miscarriage... I remember the doctor saying it's probably advisable to get your septum, the thing that divides your uterus, removed. So then we had to wait for the surgery, which took six months, and then have the surgery and then wait after that. So that was another three months. And then it took, I think, eight months to get pregnant then. And so then that third baby was a real loss. I mean, that was because it had been all that stuff that we'd gone through. So I suppose that my, uh, the sort of feel of, of blame, I knew that there were things that were impacting me. So I suppose that in a way that gave me a, it removed some of the mystery for me. I think that there's always like an inherent part of me that blamed myself in that that messy teenager, not looking after things properly, the mucky Tupperware at the bottom of my bag, the fact that, you know, I will always lose and break things and I can't look after nice things. <laughs> I don't deserve to have nice things. I think there's a real inherent part of me that that believed that. But how did your partner take the great challenge and upset and trauma of the cycles of, pre- of trying to get pregnant and then the disappointment and the sadness and all of that? You know, how, how did that get processed and how was his shape more upset? He, to me coped with it extremely well. He was emotionally available to me. He didn't necessarily open up about it very much. We talked a lot about it and we used to talk about what our plans were, you know, because I got into this... Well, when my mum was diagnosed with cancer, she had like 18 months between diagnosis and when she died. Being aware that I didn't have long left with her, I started to record our conversations sometimes. Um, Or just little things like, you know, we would watch our favourite film together and I'd just record the last little bit of us watching it, so I'd always have that. And me and David, well, no, I used to record moments. Because we were at UCH for the last three pregnancies, 
we'd have quite a drive there and I'd often like just record us and I'd say to him I'm just recording us and we just you know the things that we used to talk about on the way back from the hospital when we just discovered we were having a miscarriage was really strange you know like um I don't know talking about Alan Partridge or Only Falls and Horses or where we were going to get the sushi from and (laughs) really weird random stuff um and we bonded a lot over these little rituals that we had so for example if I was bleeding or if there was something wrong we knew it was best to get to the early pregnancy unit as early as possible so we'd get there at eight o'clock and we'd sit on the floor outside before it opened because once it was open there'd be queues and queues of people some people who were clearly pregnant and if you think you're having a miscarriage it's really unpleasant and upsetting to be around so we we just became real old hands you know we knew all the things and we'd sit outside I made a recording of it one time we'd sit outside and just we talk about weird random things and then we talk about going again are we going to go again what are we going to do how long are we going to wait um, but I think he was incredible, really. Did he get tested at all in terms of you? Know, because I recognise that fifty percent of fertility issues are with the man, so it, yes. it's an even distribution across the parents. I think after my third miscarriage, I had the tests that you have, you know, the standard tests, and that included uh, my partner giving a sperm sample. I always remember it because he said he had to go and do it in a little <laughs> cubicle, or whatever. And he came back and met me downstairs, and he said. I winked at the nurse when I handed it over. <laughs> so I don't know what possessed me. I just, I, I just gave it to her and I just gave her a little wink and I was like, yeah, that's, that's definitely really inappropriate. But yes, he was part of the standard tests that you have after three miscarriages. But yeah, I suppose throughout, knowing that I had all of these different things impacting, I always felt that it was my thing that I was carrying, actually. It was my complications you know it was the things that had happened to me and not him I do feel that um what's been quite interesting is that I feel like when we got through the pregnancy through the pregnancy I had a placenta previa where the placenta is too low I think that's right low-lying placenta and I had I think two or three bleeds one of them was quite significant had to go into hospital and I ended up being in hospital for three and a half weeks because there was this potential to give birth very early and I think I was like 22 weeks when I went into hospital yeah so I wanted to be there in case I went into labor and so I was there for three and a half weeks I had all that and then the birth itself was a very long sort of traumatic experience I feel like at the end of it I was not bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at all but I was really renewed by the fact that we had this baby and to a certain extent I was able to forget about the stuff that had happened in the past but I think for him I really felt from him the impact of all of those years and years and years of for him feeling very powerless I think so often you imagine that you're going to go through these different stages of grieving and dealing with things and actually you just live your life and some days are really hard and some days aren't but I do think the thing about miscarriage is it's a very real grief but you don't have a thing to focus on. Um, I mean I, I know that there is more work being done about people who have miscarried being able to name their child and to have a birthday yeah. and, uh, and I don't know how you feel about that or whether that's something that was helpful or useful for you. Yeah, it's so personal, isn't it? I did a workshop recently and I was slightly nervous about doing it actually because it was about how can we help 
ourselves and each other as people who've gone through miscarriage to deal with the pain of it. So there was no promise of any sort of therapeutic advice or medical advice. And I sort of did my opening gambit and, you know, I'm quite a experienced workshop facilitator, but this was a new area for me. And I regularly referred to the babies that I'd lost and the babies that had died. And thinking, you know, that's probably what these women want because I want to, to properly observe that this is a life that has gone. And then one of the ladies, one of the women, she wasn't at all, I don't think she was upset about it, but she said, oh, I don't refer, I don't think about it like that at all. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, people feel very differently. And I think another thing is I've had people say to me, you're babies, and I feel weird about that. I've had a doctor correct me to not say babies, but to say miscarriages. Oh, you, you mean the miscarriages, not the babies, you know, when I... So I don't know, it's really weird. And then there's a charity that does this thing, which is like a memory box for when you have a miscarriage but it's weird because it's generic so it's like you have to, I can't remember what the little objects are but there's maybe a little woolly teddy and a little tag so you can write the date whatever and I thought oh, there's something about that about the idea of this generic grief for this generic lost baby which I think is weird but I think that there's a there's a funny thing of um that as you go on and you have multiple losses and stuff, you become more and more wary about, about addressing that baby as a baby or thinking about that baby as a baby. But I remember once, I think the last, because I ended up, even though I had this medical management, it never really worked. So I would, with my first miscarriage, I carried on bleeding for ages and ages. And second miscarriage, I mean, I get confused, I can't remember... For the third miscarriage, I just went straight to having this ERPC. I was just like, right, going to get in there, get it done. And as this was my third surgery I'd had, I said to my partner, don't come with me. I said, I'll just go on my own, you know. And I remember thinking, getting the gown on and then saying, you know, I think I said out loud, actually, this is the end of the road for you and me, little one, you know. And I, that was a really emotional moment because it just felt so... It was a massive cycle that just been going on and on. But you do find these little, um, you do find these attachments, you know. But when my, I, I, my friend Charlie, who's been really wonderful, when I had Griff, we met up and she bought me this bracelet. And it's like this beautiful gold bangle. And it's got four lines on it, like little indentations and each line is for one pregnancy and then inside <laughs> she had engraved I'm a fucking warrior and I was like I don't know how somebody so perfectly um who wasn't directly involved was able to uh observe the way that I would want to remember you know is that they're kind of like like war wounds I suppose in a way do you know what I mean but I do want to, I don't want to pretend that they didn't happen. But then similarly, I, <laughs> in fact, actually, sorry, I remember a friend saying to me, did you ever name your babies? And I said, yes, they were all called Nina. And he thought it was fucking hilarious. <laughs> but I was like, as the pregnancies ended, I just passed the name along <laughs> to the next one. So that was quite funny. So we did talk about names and they were all going to be called Nina. But then with the fourth pregnancy, we found out it was a boy. So it was it was Griff from quite early on. Sorry, I've just got lost in a world of emotions there. <laughs>
it's funny how it's just something things catch you off guard do you know what i mean and and it's just like oh wow that's the thing that's going to knock me off is it <laughs> do you know what i mean that's the thing that's going to send me sort of reeling I mean, yeah. that's, that's what's really struck me about the whole piece was it was a constant cycle and a constant work through of possibility and hope and loss and grief and but it would it would but but there was never a point it seemed that there wasn't one of the positive bits as well as the next if that makes sense yeah that's really that's really good I'm pleased I mean I think I was always ready to get up and get going again like it's actually a weirdly depressing capitalist thing but it's absolutely huge industry trying for a baby and there's a whole ritual of getting your prenatal vitamins and buying your ovulation sticks that you piss on and you've got your calendar and all that stuff i was always you know just i'm gonna get back into it because that felt like the beginning of have being a mum i suppose maybe that was all that i had to cling to that was all that was in my control is to piss on those sticks and to, <laughs> and to take those prenatal vitamins and so I never completely lost, like completely lost hope. And the times that were most frustrating for me was when I was having to wait to start trying again, because at least when we were trying again, I was doing something, we were doing something of, of positive, you know, action. How long do you have to wait? One period. And quite often they say you can get pregnant very quickly after having a miscarriage yeah i heard it was like your first six months after a miscarriage is the most likely time for you to conceive yeah. again and it's weird because my first pregnancy was an absolute like i mean obviously we had unprotected sex so i say it was a complete surprise i mean you know <laughs> it's kind of what you get told about at school isn't it yeah, yeah. but um but it was that it was it wasn't something we made a habit of so it seemed really bizarre and i i remember thinking god we are fertile like mm. the two of us together oh my god hello Hello. Hiya. This is Griff. This is, yeah. <laughs> She's talking about you. Hello. No, not Hello, Griff. Oh. Can you say hello? Hello, gorgeous. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. This is our, I think this is our first special guest. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. He's going to have a git-git, which is a biscuit, isn't it? Do you want a git-git? Yeah. Come on, have a git-git instead. Go on. Did you have fun? Yeah, you loved it, apparently. No, oh, <laughs> it's his first day back today at the um, at the childminders. So. Oh. Uh, what were we saying? Oh yeah, so um, so I thought you know after the miscarriage, I thought well we got pregnant so quickly this time, you know it, it's just going to be like that. And then I think that time it was six months, then the second time it was eight months, and then the third time it was five months. So it became very frustrating because even though in this great scheme of things, that's not a long time to be trying for a baby. A lot of people try a lot longer. Um, it felt long. And I remember the only time I ever went to a miscarriage support group, and I'm really glad I went. It was a good experience. And I never went back, but it, I went at the right time. It was good for me to do it. It was just actually, I became aware of that there was stuff out there for me to help me. If I wanted to go back to it, I remember thinking, they're going to have nothing on me. No one is going to have been as unlucky as I am. And honestly, there was me and two other women there. Obviously, it's completely anonymous. So I think it's fine to say that I thought none of them can have it as bad as me. One woman had been trying for three years and then just lost that baby. Mm. So she'd had one miscarriage. And one woman had had three miscarriages in a year. How were you able to find comfort or joy or pleasures in your body after going through 
these traumatic experiences. I can only imagine, mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, yeah. f- forgive me. But um, I, I'd find it hard, I think. I'd feel that my body had betrayed me. Yeah, yeah. And how, when you feel like your body has betrayed you, uh, but you need to keep loving it because it's still fertile and it's <laughs> yeah. still able, hopefully, potentially, and it was, to, to, to yeah. produce a, a baby. How, how do you forgive it, love it, yeah. give it attention, feel in your body, actually? Yeah, I mean, exercise has been a big part of my life for a long time. And I certainly would have been running a lot in between. And that gave me a lot of freedom and headspace. I was doing some good work. I think it was my third miscarriage. I'd just finished a succession room. So that was a really positive experience. And it was really wonderful to be part of that. And I was, I think the room had just finished, but I was um, writing my episode. So I was still very much in contact and stuff. And that that was my first ever TV job, which is hilarious. (laughs) I am aware of how ridiculous that is. So I'd been doing something really good and using my creativity and earning some decent fucking money for once in my life and working with incredible people so my self-confidence had been boosted by many different things and even though that wasn't necessarily to do with my body that felt really positive and my work has given me a lot I think that physically exercise would have been a big part of it, I suppose. And I think, I mean, we did talk briefly, uh, didn't we, Naomi, about sex and about the act of sort of trying for a baby and how that can, uh, for a lot of couples, um, that can become fraught and very difficult and anxiety-inducing. And I think, ultimately, I have to say, I found that, I think we found that quite a healing process. There was something really... Again, it's kind of about ritual and repetition mm. and closeness, something that we had to do only us together, you know, that I suppose that I found sex and trying for a baby again, healing, healing, <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> However, there's something slightly perverse about this idea of trying to heal for something you've lost by getting a new thing of that again, you know, yeah. and the possibility it feels so tiny and so tenuous so every time you have sex you have that hope but you know you can't invest in it too much I mean god it's like it's a really good question but you know it's I do honestly wonder how I've got through the <laughs> I really wonder how I've got through the last it's why it's as your friend said you you are a warrior you have been a warrior yeah I mean I feel like Obviously, because there was all the stuff with my mum as well. It was just... No, I think I know what it is, actually. The way I've got through it, which I think will serve me very well in the rest of my life, is that when you are absolutely living with a sense of uncertainty and insecurity, and there is nobody in the world that can tell you anything for sure, you know, nobody could tell me, you know, even after that 12-week thing... Even after your 20-week scan, you know, when I was in hospital thinking I was going to give birth at 22 weeks or something, no one can tell you it's going to be all right. So you really then do have to learn to, you live on your own resources, which is your love for yourself and the love that's been given to you and the love for the people around you and your own resilience. I think, yeah, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't wish what I'd been through in that way on anyone, but I really think it's been the making of me in a lot of ways because it's made me become incredibly strong in a way that I just can't imagine anything else could. I mean, part of the question I wanted to ask is, how would you have known when to stop? 
I met someone at a wedding once that I told her we'd recently had one, two, I can't remember, and she'd had 11 or something. And I remember thinking at the time, oh my God, the pain of that. Um, but I remember thinking, I think I set myself this really arbitrary thing, which was I'll either have five or I'll get to 40, whichever comes first. So that, that was my sort of arbitrary target. But then what I realised was, fuck, if I do that, then when I get to that fifth pregnancy, every single thing is going to be so loaded because I'm like, this is my last one, this is my last go. Or if I get pregnant at 39 and three quarters, I'm like, this is the last one. So when I realised how stressful that would load whatever pregnancy it was I think I just gave up and at that point I thought you know what I'll just keep going I'll just keep going I can keep going and something that a friend who had a similar experience to me we both said that you think if I could only just make baby making is a hobby you know it's something that I do on five particular dates in the month or two or three particular dates in the month and I have all the paraphernalia I need for it <laughs> And I know exactly what I'm doing. And then when, you know, when my period's due, we'll wait and see, whatever. If you could compartmentalise that and go, OK, well, I'm just going to spend these next couple of years trying for a baby, you know, in my spare time, then it would be much more bearable. And actually, that is what you aim for. You aim to rely on nothing, to assume nothing. And so you think, I could be trying for years. But what it really fucks with is your identity. And so your identity when you start trying, when I started my journey is very different than when I was coming towards the end of my journey. I really felt like this mother who had just been robbed of the chance of really experiencing motherhood three times. Um, and I felt so ready and so just chomping at the bit, like just wanting to get there, that I feel like when I had Griff, it felt so natural. And a couple of people commented, oh, this is your first baby, you know, you seem so natural. And I was just like, yeah, but I mean, it's, yeah, it's just been a really long time coming. And actually it's been, being a mother, I felt that I was going to be a mother for a long time. So yeah, I don't know, I was lucky enough to not have to make that heartbreaking decision of stopping. Yes. And when I hear about people that have made the decision to stop and not pursue having a child in any other way, I just, I, my heart, I feel, they don't need my pity or my heartbreaking for them, but I just massively respect and I'm quite in awe of what a decision that must be. Thank you for listening to The Pleasure Podcast. If you enjoy this, do share, review and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help other people find us and helps to give the series a boost. Please do give us five stars. Thank you to Acast for hosting us. Matt Peaver for editing us. Ollie Birch for the music. Gilad Vysotsky for the graphics. Join us next time when we interview another guest for their insights on the relationship we have to our bodies, sex and of course, pleasure. pleasure. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.